good to be here. We're on? Great. Uh, thanks for reading. It'd be great uh, if you've got a device or a Bible uh, to keep that open to Revelation 2. There will be some slides coming up on the screen. Uh, but I thought to begin, I just wanted to put a, a thought out there. Um, I don't know how many of us like standing out from the crowd. I think to stand out from the crowd is a hard thing to do. I think in Australia, it may be even harder than other places in the world. And the reason I say that is because in Australia, we have this weird thing called a tall poppy syndrome. Anyone know about the tall poppy syndrome? You've probably heard that phrase. <laughs> It's not just because we're physically tall, is it, Mike? If someone achieves where someone else hasn't achieved or the majority haven't achieved, they stand out from the crowd. Uh, if a tall poppy is someone who may live differently from the people around them, so much so that they kind of stand out, they're seen to be different. And in Australia, it seems that for tall poppies, instead of celebrating them, us Aussies, what do we do? We kind of look at tall poppies with a mixture of envy and dislike and we cut them down. Collingwood <laughs> finally wins another grand final and we don't celebrate. <laughs> what do we do? Instead of celebrate, we cut them down. It was luck. Oh, the other team had too many injuries. Oh, the ref never should have played that last advantage, should he? No. One of the things we as Australians are very good at is cutting tall poppies down to size, which I think means that in our culture, we fear being different. We fear standing out too much because to stand out too much will actually exclude us. So what do we tend to do? Rather than stick out, we prefer to blend in. And I don't think it's just Australians uh, that actually tend to cut people down to size, that stand out. You may have noticed, I think, over the past kind of decade or so, uh, in the media, um, there is this other thing which I think is a little bit like tall poppy syndrome. It's got a different name. It's called cancel culture. Uh, you may have heard that phrase, cancel culture. Uh, it seems that if a famous person... Uh, is deemed to have acted or spoken out in an unacceptable way, then that person is cancelled. It seems the media industry takes great delight in doing all they can to cancel that person's voice, to silence them, stop them having a voice, stop them having an influence. You probably know of some people who have been cancelled. Uh, about a decade ago, you might remember Margaret Court. Margaret Court, uh, the great tennis player, uh, who also happens to be a Christian pastor, she spoke out about her views that uh, she believed marriage is to be between a man and a woman. And she got cancelled. Uh, she was slammed by the media for holding such views. You might remember Israel Folau, a very prominent rugby league and rugby union star who tweeted a Bible verse that implied that God will judge 
sexual immorality. And what happened to him? Dropped. Dropped from the team, cancelled. Now, you might um, take uh, kind of offence with the way that those people spoke out, uh, maybe the, the way that they said the things that they said. Uh, we could have done that better or something, we might say, but the reality is they had very different views and they got cancelled. And it's not just Christians, actually, who have been cancelled by the media. You might know uh, J.K. Rowling, uh, the author of the Harry Potter series. Uh, she has spoken out uh, to say what she believes a woman is. She believes a woman is someone who is born biologically female, not someone who has transgendered to become a woman. Rowling's conservative views are deemed by very many as hateful and divisive and she has been cancelled. Uh, you can go to the, um, the, the Pop Culture Museum in Seattle and you can see the Harry Potter exhibit and you will not find Rowling's voice, uh, her name mentioned anywhere in the whole exhibit. Recently at Comic Con, uh, a panel of Harry Potter actors were cancelled because of their association to Rowling. If you make a stand, exclusion is real. That's the world we live in, right? Uh, I, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but I think this actually creates a bit of a problem for Christians. Because Christians are called to live lives that are different, aren't we? We're actually called to live lives that stand out. Jesus says you are to be a city on a hill. You are to let your light so shine before men that people will see your good works and glorify God. We're supposed to stand out, aren't we, as Christians? We're supposed to live radically different lives to those around us in such a way that people will say, those Christians think different, live different and act different. We're not supposed to just blend in. And here's something that I think none of us like to hear. If we stand out, exclusion, being cancelled, even persecution is real. And it seems to me that the church in Pergamum knew that really well. It seems to me that that is the context in which we find the church in Pergamum. Uh, we're in a series here at church... Uh, where we are looking at Jesus' words to these seven first century churches. We're up to number three. Uh, I've been enjoying it so far. Uh, the church in Pergamum uh, is where we're at today. And as we've seen the last few weeks, uh, each of the letters actually follows a very similar structure. Uh, the structure will come up on the screen. If you're a note taker, you might want to write this down. Um, it says each letter begins with, with an address to the particular church. Um, it's from Jesus, uh, there's a commendation, there's something that the church is doing well, uh, there's then a complaint, something that Jesus wants the church to change, something he holds against them. And then uh, there's a call, what he wants them to do in response, and then each letter ends with an amazing promise, an incredible promise to those who heed the call. Uh, 
we see in verse 12, it'll come up on the screen, that Jesus begins this letter to the church in Pergamum by introducing himself in a really vivid way. See there verse 12? Let me read it out. He says this, uh, These are the words of him who has a sharp, double-edged sword. Uh, we actually spoke about this uh, a couple of weeks ago, this image of a sharp, double-edged sword. Then it was protruding out of Jesus' mouth, not literally, but it's a picture, it's an image in order to convey something. And that is this, that when Jesus speaks, his words are powerful. When Jesus speaks, his words are sharp and strong. When Jesus speaks, his words are penetrating, they are freeing. They're true. And here we see in verse 13, Jesus speaks to commend this church for standing up for him. For standing up for him. Have a look there in verse 13. He says this, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Now, I think in these verses, as we look at it together, there's a few things for us to note. Uh, you might notice that the language is pretty strong here. Uh, Jesus says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Now, I take it to say, I know where you live is not like stalker kind of language. You know, I know where you live. Uh, he's actually saying, no, 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 I know where you live. I see it. I get it. I understand it. I know how hard it is. Because look at the next phrase, where Satan has his throne. What does that mean? A couple of weeks ago, uh, not a couple of weeks ago, last week, um, I think Donna actually really helpfully helped us see this. as She helped us look at the church in Smyrna. Donna showed us that behind all human uh, persecution of Christians actually stands the work of Satan. Uh, she showed us that um, that in the church in Pergamum, that uh, in the church of Smyrna, that the opposition that they faced it wasn't just human opposition; it was Satan's opposition. It was Satan trying to pull the church down. And I think we see the same thing here with the church in Pergamum. Uh, it's the very same thing. Satan has actually worked in such a way in that city, in that culture in order that to live and not give in to the culture was actually to be going against Satan. Seems to me, um, as I've looked into the church in Pergamum uh, this past week, uh, it seems that to live in that culture uh, demanded that you worship the Roman emperor as God. Uh, don't worship the true God of the Bible. You don't do that. No, no, no. Worship the Roman Emperor as God. Uh, that was the dominating thought in the culture. In fact, I did a bit of uh, research uh, into this particular place and time this week. Uh, and, and what we find, actually, is that in Pergamum, in that area, uh, that area was actually governed by a man called Pliny the Younger. I don't know much about Pliny the Older, but we know a little bit about Pliny the Younger. He was the governor of the day, and you can see on this map, it's a pretty cool map, um, Pliny used to kind of do these 
um, traveling routes where he'd go through these different towns in order to enforce the Roman rule throughout the different provinces, in order to, to enforce emperor worship throughout these different promise, uh, provinces. And so this governor Pliny, because he was so far away from Rome itself, uh, he would actually write letters. You know what letters are? We know what letters are, don't we? We have emails and texts and things these days, but letters are where you write things down and you send it off and it arrives somewhere else and they read it. And it's really helpful for us because we actually get, as we read letters from that day, we get lots of insight into what was going on. So Pliny, the governor, would write letters back to the emperor to show what he was doing in order to try and enforce allegiance or loyalty to the emperor. Uh, and we have um, a letter from Pliny the Younger, and I want to read you a little extract. It'll come up on the screen. Uh, this is what uh, he would do in order to test whether someone was a allegiant to Rome or allegiant to Christ. He said this, he writes this, Those who denied that they were or ever had been Christians, who repeated after me an invocation to the gods and offered adoration with wine and incense to your statue, that's the emperor's statue, which I had ordered to be brought for this purpose, together with images of the gods and who finally cursed Christ, all things that is said no real Christian can be forced to do, I thought they should be discharged." Do you see the test of loyalty that was there for Christians in the day? Are you willing to pray to their God? Will you offer worship with wine and incense to their statue? Will you deny Christ only if you did all those things? Would you be let free? Here in Pergamum, Satan is working very hard to try to get Christians to deny Jesus, to worship other gods. And Jesus knows this. He says, I know it. I know where he live. He sees this. And in fact, here in this letter, he actually mentions their leader, Antipas, Antipas who stood true to Jesus. Antipas, who was actually killed, who was burned alive because he would not deny Jesus. History actually tells us about this quote that's on the screen. Apparently, someone once said to Antipas, Antipas, the whole world is against you. And Antipas replied, then I am against the whole world. What a statement, eh? The whole world is against you, then I am against the whole world. Why? Because he loved Jesus. He would not deny Jesus. In a culture that demanded absolute loyalty, Antipas said, no, I'm going to be loyal to Jesus. Even if everyone is against me, I'm going to be loyal to Jesus. Antipas so believed in Jesus. was so thankful for the forgiveness of sins that he had, the hope of eternal life, for the, the gift of the Spirit. He, he was so thankful for what he had in the Gospel that he would rather die than give Jesus up. Now, I don't know, this might be a bit of a long bow, but I wonder if you ever feel a bit like Antipas. 
Like maybe sometimes being a Christian means that it feels like the world is against you. Maybe at your work, at uni where you study, maybe even in your family, maybe you're the only Christian in that place. And it's hard. It's hard to keep being loyal to Jesus. Maybe in that place, uh, when some of those kind of, you know, tricky conversations, tricky topics come up, temptation is just to keep our head down, isn't it? To not say too much. But here Jesus says, great work for following me. Great work for following me. Keep going, even when it's really hard. I know where you live, Jesus says. And he says to this church in Pergamum, who has made a major stand, he says, well done. Well done, church. This church, do you see, it drew a line in the sand and it said, we will not buckle, we will not deny Jesus, even if martyrdom comes knocking. Jesus commends that church for standing true to him. It seems that this church had stood firm against Satan's attack from the outside. It stood firm from these attacks to try to get the church to deny Jesus. But as we keep reading, we actually see that that wasn't Satan's only tactic to try to pull this church down. It seems to me, uh, as I've looked at this, that Satan not only works from the outside to pull a church down, he also works from the inside of a church if he can. And I think that's what we see him doing in verses 14 and 15. Let me read these verses for us. He says this, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So this church we've just seen, right, in Pergamum, uh, they've kind of survived that attack from the outside. But now I think here Jesus is warning them about a danger within, within the church. Within the church in Pergamum, it seems that there are people, he says, doing what Balaam and Balak did. Also, similarly, the Nicolaitans seem to be doing a similar thing. And so I guess the question is, well, well what was that thing that they were doing? Uh, what is it that they've got caught up in? Um, well, you can go back and you can read uh, if you want. Uh, it's, a, it's a pretty good read. Uh, in the Old Testament, um, Numbers chapters 22 to 31, there's a really long story about Balak, who was the king of Moab, uh, and how he hated God's people, the Israelites. So much so, he wanted to get rid of them. And so what he did was he employed a prophet called Balaam, who sold himself out for cash. Uh, and, he, and Balak, the king, employed Balaam in order to pronounce a prophet's curse on God's people and try to destroy them. Uh, Balaam, uh, who was more enticed uh, by money than uh, being one of God's people, he said, okay, I'll try and do that. 
Um, but what happens as you read the story is that as he tries to pronounce this curse, every time he does, God kind of says to him, don't pronounce a curse, pronounce a blessing. And so he kind of turns back to God and he pronounces blessings. And, and so Balak is paying this prophet in order to pronounce a curse and he can't do it. He can't kind of get him from the outside. And so as you read the story, what you see is that Balaam says, here's how you can pull God's people down. Get the most beautiful women and send them in the camp and pull them down from the inside. And that's exactly what happens. Uh, Balak um, commands all these beautiful Moabite women uh, to go into the Israelite camp and all too soon, huge numbers of the Israelite men find themselves in bed with Moabite women. And what that meant was that the Israelites, who had prided themselves on being so distinct from the nations, they end up becoming just like them. As they got caught up in this sexual immorality, the Moabite women brought in their gods and brought in their food and brought in their sacrifices, so much so that God's people just became extremely compromised. Now, you can read the story later if you want. Uh, it's, a, it's a really interesting read. Um, but in the end, you actually find out that God was not at all happy with the end result. But you kind of see the tactic, right? Uh, Balaam turned the Israelites away from God, not from the outside, not kind of through opposition from the outside, but by infiltrating them from within. And he did it by appealing to kind of the worldly fleshy appetites, the desires, and it worked. So, with that in mind, what was it that may have been happening in the church in Pergamum? Well, it seems to me that it could be something like this. Christians in Pergamum are starting to compromise on their beliefs. There were people in the church in Pergamum who were teaching things that, like in Balaam's day, led God's people to worship the same idols as those around them led them to get caught up in sexual immorality. The church in Pergamum was actually allowing teaching that was not God's teaching. They were allowing teaching that was just going with the flow of society instead of standing up against it. And so it seems to me that the church in Pergamum, it's kind of an odd church, don't you reckon? See, at one level, they were willing to die for Jesus. <laughs> they would not, would not renounce him. But at the same time, they weren't willing to stay true to the teaching of Jesus in all the ways that he called them to. They were compromising their beliefs. And most people, um, most commentators say, particularly probably when it came to what they believed about sexual ethics and behaviours. So what does Jesus say to this church who's starting to compromise or tolerating teaching like that? No worries. <laughs> it's fine, all good. No, have a look at verse 16. Verse 16, he says, repent. Repent. Otherwise, I will soon come to you 
and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Do you see what Jesus says? King Jesus says he will not tolerate false teaching in his church. If they don't change, change soon, he will come in judgment on those members of his church. Yes, he was so pleased that they were willing to die for him. But he is terribly displeased that they are compromising on these issues. Now, I don't know about you, um, but I know in my life, in my work, uh, with my friends, my neighbours, um, there are times where when certain topics or conversations come up, it can be really tempting to just go with the flow, can't it? To not speak up. To, to not say what Jesus says, particularly around areas of sex and marriage and gender and all those sorts of things. Now, I get that we need to be really sensitive in the way we have these conversations. I get that we need to be really careful in the way we enter into conversations. I get that. I mean, I, I, I work at the uni <laughs> doing this with students. I, I get that. I get that it's tricky. But you know this week, on Thursday actually, a student, a Christian guy came up to me, first year student, and he said to me, Steve, Steve, can you please show me again from the Bible where God says that sex is for marriage? Can you please do that for me, Steve? Because it is so hard for me to keep believing it because no one is telling me that. That's what he said to me. Can you please do that, Steve? He wanted me to show him again from the Bible what it said. He wanted me to open up the double-edged sword and let it speak. And so that's what we did. And I think that's what Jesus is saying to this church here in Pergamum. He's saying, church, please do that. Open the Bible. Teach it. Let it speak. And, you know, I think this is a pretty timely reminder for us as a church in Australia, don't you think? Because I know some churches that when it comes to these issues have decided to say nothing because it's too difficult. It's too tricky. We don't want to stand out. I know of other churches that have actually moved to say that they are more open and affirming of other ways of understanding. Many are doing that. But Jesus says, Church, please don't do that. Stay true to me. Don't fear being cancelled. Don't fear being excluded. Don't fear not being loved by the people around you. No, instead, in verse 17, do you see what he says? No, he says, look at what I give you. Look at what I give you, church. Look at what I promise you. He says there, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. To him who overcomes, that is him who stays true to Jesus, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. To those who stay true to Jesus, he says, do you know what I'm going to promise you? I'm going to give you two things. Two things, hidden manna, and a white stone. Now, what do these things mean? Well, manna 
you might remember, was the food. It was the food that God provided for the Israelites in the desert for so many years. It was the food that, that rained down from heaven that satisfied their every desire. It was an amazing provision of God to a hungry, hungry people. And so to a church that is being tempted to feed on all these other false truths, Jesus says, look how I feed you. Look what I give you. Look how I satisfy you. In fact, I actually wonder if the hidden manner might actually be Jesus kind of alluding to himself, saying that he is the true manner. I wonder if he's actually saying to us that he is the true bread of life come down from heaven, the one who we are so hungry for. Church, what are you hungry for? What are you wanting? What are you searching for when those other teachings seem so tempting? You want to be loved by the people around you? Jesus says, look how much I love you. I died for you. You want to belong? Not be cancelled? Well, Jesus says, you know what? I know absolutely everything about you. The good and the bad. The joys, the sorrows, the guilt, the shame. And he says, on the cross, I went to the cross and I did everything to cancel out anything that might cancel anything between me and you. All the sin, all the shame, it's gone. I died to take that away. So you'll never be cancelled by me, Jesus says. It's incredible, isn't it? Friends, Jesus says, can you taste what I give you? I give you true love. I give you true belonging, true acceptance, true security. Feed on those truths, he says. Let them satisfy you. Stay true to me. Amen. Thanks, Mike. <laughs> but more than that, secondly, he says, it's not just the manner. I also give you a white stone with a new name written on it. Back in those days, a white stone was most likely a ticket, an entry pass. You'd be given a white stone if you were to get entry into the gladiatorial games or something like that. So what he's saying here is, I'm giving you a ticket in. I'm giving you a white stone. I'm giving you a ticket into the best place, a seat at my table forever. And he says on that white stone is a name. And we know, don't we, that names in the Bible, they're all about identity, they're all about who we are. So for those whose earthly names might be being dragged through the mud, Jesus says, I give you a new name, you're mine. But not only that, do you see, he says this new name that he has, it's a name that's just between you and him. It's a name that only he and you will know. That's a kind of incredible thought, don't you reckon? That Jesus gives you a name, an individual special name. He gives me an individual special name. You know, sometimes I, I kind of catch myself thinking, I don't know if Jesus particularly loves me. I get that he loves people. I get that he loves everyone. But does he really especially love me? You ever think that? Verse 17, Jesus says, I've got a special name for you. And one day... I'll tell it to you. That's kind of special, don't you think? <laughs> it's intimate. 
I don't know, maybe there's some couples, married couples here who have a special name for each other that only you know between one another. Maybe, maybe your mum or your dad had a special name for you. That's what Jesus is saying here. That's how he feels for us. He doesn't just know you by name. He's got a special name. A special name and he says one day he'll share it with you and you alone. So stick with him. Stick with him. Stay true to him. To this church that is struggling with the temptation to compromise, I take it that this promise of a relationship with him is just so, so important. Jesus says, friends, see what I give you. See what I give you. I give you the ultimate relationship. I give you love. I give you belonging. I give you security. You are fully known. All those desires that we we search for in other places, Jesus says, I give it to you. So will you walk with me? Will you stay true to me? To this church, he says, church, stay true to me, even if it means standing out for me. I take it he also says, if we haven't been doing that, then he went to the cross and he died for that too. And he forgives us. And he says, turn back to me, repent. He says, draw near to me. Draw near to me, relate to me. And friends, if this seems hard, I just want to close with one last thought. And that's this. I think that the people that we hang out with most are actually the people that we become like most. You ever notice that? Friends hang out together, start using the same words, wear the same clothes, do similar things together. I think Jesus is saying, have that kind of relationship with me. Hang out with me. Spend time with me. Be intimate with me because when you do, you'll actually start believing what I believe. And you'll start behaving like I behave. Seems to me... One of the incredible things about Jesus is that Jesus was someone who held to very strong beliefs. Beliefs that may well have been very offensive and pushed people away. But at the same time, Jesus lived a life of love like no one else that the world had ever seen. His grace, his compassion, his kindness, his gentleness, his respect, his wisdom... He held very strong beliefs and at the same time was incredibly, incredibly loving. And I think that's what he calls us to do. John sums it up really well, I think. He says this in his letter. He says, We beheld his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Will that be us? A church full of grace and truth. Let me pray for us. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you for who you are. You are our creator. You're our God. You're our Father who loves us, who has given us your Son, who died and rose for us. Father, you call us to be a holy people. You call us to be distinct. You call us to be loving, to be gracious. 
Father, please help us. Please help us to stay true to you in all the ways that you call us to in your word. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.